Hey, Forge family. In our last podcast, number 11, James takes on the wealthy, unbelieving landowners. <clears throat> Those in and around the synagogues in which the congregants of the assemblies met as well. Those rich men were hoarding wealth, stealing wages, squandering resources on their own lush lifestyles. And ultimately, James charges them with murder. The first six verses of James' letter, chapter 5, is a prophetic utterance against those that used, discarded, and killed Christians. Their judgment from God is on the way. Next, James instructs again how his people are to respond to trials. <clears throat> Patience and perseverance as they trust God most high for his justice to be done. He illustrates the non-passive nature of macrothumia, that word for patience. That in, It's a patience that endures. It's active in its, in its waiting. It's like the farmer who waits for the early and late rains of Palestine. <clears throat> and we're called to that perseverant waiting as well. James next returns to the tongue and reports of the complaint and murmurings that were filtering from the congregations, um, <clears throat> that were, they were the same ones in the midst of the trials. James's word is, stop it. Don't complain at all, because that is judgment, and judging is evil. Instead, James points them to observe the prophets and how they suffered, and look at Job, who persevered under trial. Lastly, James calls his people to hyper-care, hyper-carefulness of what comes out of their mouths. No oaths, no vows, just yes means yes and no means no. That's what's acceptable to God. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who ever make intercession for us, you who are not distant, not untouched by our trials and weaknesses, please, Lord, help us lean on Holy Spirit for the lessons here in James. So we are believers of truth and those who act in truth. In your mighty name, amen. All right, family. We're going to begin episode number 12. So get your Bibles, get your notebooks, cup of coffee. We're launched on to episode number 12. This is James's conclusion of his letter to the believers in this scattered congregation spread out through the synagogues as part of the diaspora. And we're in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Let's read it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective 
Prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. <clears throat> In verse 13, where we're beginning, James is finishing his instruction to those who are undergoing trials. In his congregations, perhaps not all of them experienced economic exploitation. Others may have been suffering from virulent illness. The Mediterranean regions of James's day were were often swept by waves of plague or cholera in the cities and other wasting diseases. Disease and disability was rampant. So when James asks, is anyone suffering? There would have been a unanimous response. If not now, soon. Now James immediately orders, and, he, and he, he's using an imperative somewhere between let this happen and you must make this happen. It's, it's sort of like the English should. And he says, if you're suffering, and that's from the same word as the suffering of the prophets. Okay, so your experience is like their experience. Your response should be prayer. This is a broad Greek word referring to speaking to God, moving towards him. And it is in the perfect tense. So keep on praying. Ralph Martin says, prayer like this, in the face of suffering, is revolutionary. It's not passive. You're not given into resignation to the circumstances. The Apostle Paul says, we are to call on the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Pray and let God right the wrongs and help us in our pains. Here, James is also emphasizing communal prayer under trial. Set with, but not against, the suffering are those who are in a season of joy, of cheerfulness. To those, James uses the word euthemio. <clears throat> it's a rare one that speaks of spiritual joy in knowing God personally. If you are in a season of that joy, keep on singing. Okay? You should be singing. The root is tsalo. P-S-A-L-L-O, approximately. It's our, it's our root for the word psalms. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes of those who are to recite psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in their hearts. Likewise, the church in Corinth was known as a singing church. Now, right up front, James says, we are praying people. We are singing people. When we gather, the two are to be joined together. You see, in James chapter 1, verse 2, he tells us, count it all joy, brethren, when you run into trials. So you pray and you sing whenever you're together because you're either rejoicing or you're in trials, and, and both make us part of the church. 
In verse 14, James refines his questions. Is any among you sick? Asthenei is the Greek word commonly used throughout the New Testament for sickness or to be sick. In the Jewish communities from mo where most of his listeners came from, James knows that when sickness comes, Jewish people would seek out the rabbi, not the doctor. Jewish tradition held that all sickness and disease was because of some sin, yours or your parents, etc. Now, Jesus had to confront that tradition with the man born blind in John chapter 8. And it was his own disciples who were asking, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man is born blind? And then Jesus overturns that traditional belief for the glory of God to shine. He heals the man. James recognizes that same thinking loosed in the congregation, but he steers his congregants to a unique prescription. There's nothing like this in the rest of Scripture. And it's for those who are so ill that they're homebound, they're invalided. The sick one is to call for the elders to come for the purpose of prayer. This, this sick one has to humble themselves and reach out beyond family, perhaps even beyond the rabbi, to the presbyteros. That's the Greek word for the overseers, the elders, or the bishops. Okay. Those seen in the assemblies as mature leaders, able to give counsel and direction in their faith, in other words, they're not new believers, but ones who have walked out their talk. <clears throat> and they've been identified as elders in the ecclesia. Okay, this is a Greek word in the New Testament for church. But as a group of believers gathered for the purpose of learning, ruling, and governing together by Holy Spirit. These churches, these ecclesias, were growing up in house churches Sunday through Friday in the communities where these believers lived. But those believers continued to gather for worship and, and community in the synagogues with other believers from across the region that were spread out because of the diaspora, and they would gather on the Sabbath, on Saturday, in you know from Friday night to Saturday night, in the synagogues. So, this invalid, the really sick dude, okay, is to call for the elders of the church. And the elders are to do all the praying. The faith of the elders is what is to be on display here, not that of the invalid. <clears throat> the elders pray in faith for the restoration, the healing, and the raising up to life of the one who is sick. Lastly, the elders are to reb. Word is literally anoint. Okay, olive oil, to use oil on the sick one. Now, this rubbing of oil is just rudimentary medicine uh, of the ancient Mediterranean area. Remember the Good Samaritan? He comes down the Jericho Road and he finds a man who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And all these religious figures walk right by him, don't want to get involved. So the Samaritan, the outcast, or the half-caste actually, the one who is despised by the, by the religious people in, in Israel. He gets off his animal. 
He pours wine into the wounds as an antiseptic and cleanser. Then he pours oil into the wounds and binds them up. The oil softens the hard edges of the wound and seals out pathogens and air. It's going to offer, it's the closest thing to anesthesia that was available. Okay. The oil here is symbolic of the one being set aside by Holy Spirit for God's focused attention and healing. But the focus is on the prayer, not on the oil. This is not spiritual pixie dust. This is not having the right oil from the right provenance. This is the order of service, if you will, for the one who is sick, but in faith desires healing. No special giftings are in view here. Rather, the task of praying in faith is assigned to the elders who pray in Hanumati to Kurio in the name of the Lord. They called on the risen, reigning, interceding, healing Christ. We are to be the expression of a healing church just like that. This passage is one that has a vast supply of theological opinions, disagreements, suggested rewording, on and on. One of the expositors, God bless him, I've really enjoyed his work in the book of James, <clears throat> uh, where I've, I've done my own work, and then I do my the due diligence to see what others have discovered. And, and <clears throat> he, is, he is a prime example of the above-stated problems of the wrangle. Okay. He comes up in the text to this passage, and then he says, the elders pray, you know, the text says, the elders are going to pray, and God will heal and immediately, this man shifted from exegesis, which is defined as leading out the meaning of the text, to isogesis, which is defined as reading your doctrinal framework into the text, implanting it over the text. The result is stark. He chooses to embrace alternate words for healing, not of the body, but of the soul or the spirit or for exhaustion and uh, and he does uh, a dance, literally, around the clear statements of James so that his cessationist position can be maintained in his teaching before his people. Uh, it's sad, but not shocking. You know, against the bold claim that the prayer of faith here will heal the sick. Now, granted, it would be a lot easier to read the text in verse 15 as, quote, God may Heal the text when we pray. Now that gives us some wiggle room for those that we pray for who are desperately sick and they die. Okay, But James doesn't say that. Now note, full healing in his lifetime does not come to Paul the Apostle who prayed to have a thorn in the flesh taken away. God's answer was, my grace is sufficient. My power is manifest in your weakness. Suck it up, boy. Walk it out. Miraculous healing, both instantaneous and by slow recovery, has been seen throughout church history. Just saying, quote, I think Holy Spirit doesn't do that anymore. We have a full canon of scripture. The word is enough. That's not the meaning of the word, okay? But 
there are those who say that's enough. Okay, that doesn't wipe away those miracles that continue to this day, of which my family has experienced several astonishing healings. I'm deeply grateful. Now, back to the prayer of faith. We have to come to those prayer sessions with confident expectations that God will hear and answer. As far as sin causing sickness, well, yes, sin will drive you crazy. It'll produce medical emergencies, delusions, and death. So when we come to pray for the sick, expect that God is at work in them, plumbing the depths of their lives and choices to see if there's any offense, any root cause for sickness, and he expects you to come and discern. What is going on here, really? Now, if so, then James says, the one you're praying for, their sins will be forgiven as well as their health restored. Say it again. James says, their sins will be forgiven as well as their health restored. Now, we know that there's a confession component to forgiveness. And that is where James goes next. In verse 16, James says, Therefore, based on what I just taught you all, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that healing will flow. The Greek word is yaomai. This isn't sozo. This isn't the saved, healed, and delivered word. This is physical healing, yaomai. Forgiveness flows from confession, as does healing. Communal confession is important if the sins have been disruptive to the body at large. Private confession is essential to maintain the bond of peace in the royal law, to, to love one another as you love yourself. If private confession isn't dealt with, those sins can boil over into the corporate setting and spread. James has lots of illustrations of that. It was the practice of the Moravian Church. This is the group in, in, in Europe that sparked modern missions to the lost world. They, they would gather often for seasons of confession of their sin and prayer for one another. The small groups of the Methodist movement in England would meet two to three times each week for confession of faults and cleansing prayer, supporting prayer, restorative prayer. Now, is there danger to public confession? Absolutely. The spiritual exhibitionists, if you will, can vomit their confession of the soul all over you. Fake humility and confession can just be a precursor to spiritual assault. And making confession a work of piety can be so it can just so taint and befoul and poison the whole process that people flee in disgust instead of embracing the corpse of a godly practice. <clears throat> that said, James here extends confession of sin as a participation duty to all. It's not just for pastors and leaders where you go to see them, lay it out for them. You do it one to another. All in the congregations are practice. They confess sin and they pray for one another in Jesus' name. Now, in high church settings, the confession of sin to a priest, get, mind you, that, that definition of confession is too narrow. In low church settings, where individuals just stand up and broadcast their sin 
all over everybody. Ah, that, that's too wide. Okay, the enemy of our soul loves extremes. Let me, um, let me read to you what Kent Hughes has to say. He says, there's a place for spirit-directed mutual confession between believers. Prior to, prior to World War II in Nazi Germany, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer conducted an underground seminary for the training of young pastors in Pomerania, where he shared a common life with about 25 students. His experience produced a now classic uh, spiritual writing called Life Together, in which he documents the biblical insights gained from that experience. In the fifth and final chapter of the book titled Communion and Confession, he gives some reasons for the practice of mutual confession. Primary among them is the isolation that sin brings. Sin drives Christians apart and produces a hellish individualism, a deadening autonomy. Says Bonhoeffer, quote, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, unquote. But confession to a fellow brother or sister destroys this deadly autonomy. It pulls down the barrier of hypocrisy and allows the free flow of grace in the community. The other main benefit of confession is that it brings healthy humiliation. Bonhoeffer goes on. He says, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to the pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. James briefly then turns to the prayer of the righteous of which the text of scripture is filled with potent examples. Joshua prayed, and the sun stood still. Elijah prayed, and life was restored to a widow's son. Elisha prayed, and the Shunammite's son was resurrected. Hezekiah prayed, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers waiting to assault Jerusalem woke up dead. And the Jerusalem church prayed, and Peter was miraculously released from Herod's prison. We are to be a praying church, recognizing that God is the agent of change behind healing, resurrection, and protection, all through confessional prayer. See, we're to be a confessing church. Verse 17. James uses Elijah as an example of righteous prayer, even though he was a man such as we are. His prayer for God to stop the rains issued from his trust and confidence in God, not from any arrogance or selfish desire to put King Ahab in his place. The life of Elijah stands as a, as a marker of God's judgment on idolatry and of God's desired restoration of the righteousness of Israel. James uses back-to-back -back prayer words in the text, Greek words, 
to amplify the phrase from prayer, prayer to fervent prayer, earnest prayer. And James' choice for the fervent prayer of Elijah was to was the, his prayer to stop the rain for three and a half years. And that stands out because Ahab was a king of Israel in rebellion to God, leading his nation toward the pit. Elijah was so moved to interdict that plunge that he prayed fiercely for national pain and national drought. And then, when the priests of Baal had been proven impotent and killed, he calls Israel to repent. If Baal is, is God, worship him. If Jehovah, Yahweh, is God, worship him. Israel turned. It's only then does he assume the birthing position to pray up a massive downpour to break the drought. Prayers of persistence and patience often last long periods of time. Verse 18 says, He sent his servant up to the top of Mount Carmel seven times to look out over the Mediterranean before a cloud the size of a man's hand appeared in the sky, signaling God's answer was coming. A downpour was on the way. The last two verses in James, in James chapter 5 too, uh, and uh, this deals with the reality that believers can wander away. We're all prone to slippery footing in both what we believe and how we practice purity in our lives. Given the, the hard circumstances that are possible, you know, they could be alluring terrifying, discouraging, boring, you know, whatever it is. Those circumstances, plus an opportunity, plus an inducement, we could all wander off. We could all fail. So we all need to be pulled in by brothers and sisters who watch our backs. <clears throat> that wandering is not just intellectual or philosophical or about wounds or disagreements. It's always, always about moral truth. In verse 19, the wanderers are called planethe. It's a Greek word for where we get our word planet. Planets are not fixed places in the night sky. They move around in orbit. They're wanderers, okay? This word planao can be read two, you know, the word planao in here can be read two ways, all right? We can be led astray or deceived, and, and we walk away. Or we can go astray by our own choices. What James is getting at here, again, is that truth is not just mental assent. It has to be coupled to fidelity, to walked out truth in purity and obedience. My own story includes 18 months of going astray from Jesus by my own choices. I arrived at Cal Berkeley as a junior transfer in time for the free speech movement to burst on campus security, quickly followed by anti-Vietnam War protests and ultimately campus riots. The Black Panther Party was often present to harangue huge crowds from the steps of Sproul Hall. That miasma of philosophical differences, the free love movement across the San Francisco Bay and the Haight-Ashbury District, the drugs, 
that were pouring in from Lord knows where, but they were all over campus. And my loneliness, that all pushed my curiosity into overdrive. What is out there to be looked at, tasted, reached for, and experienced? Now, the enemy of my soul responded with his own brand of deception. That was a toxic mix right there. And for 18 months, uh, it was bad. Um, After that period of time, I had an encounter with God on a deserted Mexican beach during Christmas break. And my sense was that God said to me, enough. And I stumbled back to Jesus and disentangled myself from my wanderings. That's 50 years ago. He has been completely faithful. This month marks 49 years in ministry for me. James is calling us to reach out, to reason with, but rarely confront those about wandering away. It is like the search and rescue teams who get called in when people go off the trail and disappear. See, they never rail at those people. You turkey, you walked right off that cliff in the dark, busted yourself up real bad, had to be life-flighted out to save your skin. See, rather than that, we're called to compassion. James says, when a wandering one goes through epistrepho, that's the turning back to be restored. That's repentance. That's the New Testament word. In Hebrew, it's shuv. It means to turn, to turn back, to repent. When a wandering one turns back and is restored, they are saved from death and a cover is thrown over their sins. Those that go after them evidence their faith. But it is God who restores and it is God who saves. We are called to be a restoring church. Forge family, while James has had much to say about how not to do church, these last verses are larded with positive, proactive exhortation to sing, to pray, to heal, to confess, to restore. That's the target. Point your spirit and invite Holy Spirit to infuse you with boldness to be all of those expressions, to teach others and to reach others who have walked away. Let's pray. Jesus, you are Lord of the church. And we would be those who hear, discern, and obey in walking out our ecclesia in Forge Church. Come, Holy Spirit, equip us to lead, to intervene, to pray, to sing, to rejoice, all in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, Forge family, I love you. We'll see you soon. God bless.